This is Ken Patton with Only This, a series of eclectic podcasts about real stuff, information, stories, guides, etc., that are accurate, factual, and logical. No bullshit, propaganda, lies, conspiracy theories, religious fairy tales, or other nonsense. I might slip in some fiction once in a while, but if I do, it will be clearly labeled as such. These podcasts were driven by my desire to share a lifetime of experiences and acquired knowledge in technology, music, the sciences, and life itself, and to combat the pandemic of misinformation and bullshit the world is currently suffering, because everybody's blowing smoke up your ass. So wake up. Episode 7, The Art of Programming. A good programmer is just a composer with a math aptitude, because good code is as much about elegance, form, harmony, counterpoint, clarity, and style as it is about functionality and efficiency, because good code is clear and succinct. When a complex, well-written program runs, with its multiple threads forking off new processes like new voices in a Bach fugue, they all harmonize and communicate like a church choir. It's like being at a concert in St. Patrick's Cathedral. A couple of program notes. This podcast episode is not a tutorial or how-to for programming. If I was doing that, it'd be a video, because you need to use visual aids like code snippets and diagrams to teach it effectively. This is a talk on style, strategy, and techniques. This is not a talk for raw beginners, either because you guys are still trying to figure out what a for loop is. This is for coders who have gotten beyond the basics and are looking to develop some style and aesthetics. Although this podcast episode is meant to be a general discussion about artistic values as applied to programming, I'll often use Python where examples are called for as it is a popular and easy-to-understand language, and I have a lot of ex professional experience with it. Programming computers is a new kind of profession. Just within the last 50, 75 years or so, it's about how to control and use a new kind of machine, one that can duplicate and even outperform human beings, and in increasingly sophisticated tasks as well. Like driving a car in downtown Boston, rush hour traffic. When I began coding, it was a nascent field. You couldn't get a degree in software engineering, just computer engineering, which was circuit boards, ICs, hardware, you know. So, I just walked into a job as a programmer with only a year and a half of musical and some clerical experience, because I had a knack for it. That's a lot harder to pull off today. When you write your first program, all you care about is making it work. But you can't 
even enter the first line of your digital opus without shouting an error message at you in bold typeface, syntax error, type error, value error, or some other exception. And it scolds you repeatedly and relentlessly. It doesn't even care if you say, sorry. That's your first exposure to a process known as debugging. And it's only the beginning. So, if this stage overly annoys and frustrates you, stop trying to be a programmer. For whatever reason, it's not for you. And all you're going to do is become a substance abuser or wind up in a mental hospital. As I've said, for people's own happiness, coding isn't for everyone. Programmers are born. They're not taught. Once you can successfully enter a few lines of code in a sequence without precipitating an error, you can try to run it. That simply means pressing the enter key without any input in a Python interpreter and compiling, linking, and running it without errors in a compiled language like C++. Errors that occur when you run a program are known as runtime errors and are a general term for value error, like when the program expects a number and the user enters a string, division by zero, that kind of stuff. This raises the question of how does the program handle exceptions, such as when the user enters an illegal value? Python and most other languages have what are known as error traps or exception handlers. In Python, what you do is you wrap your code in a try except block. You try something like input uh, a number and the user enters uh, blah, blah, blah. And then you have an exception which says accept value error do this like you know you say no that's not a legal number and re-ask the question anyway so next are logic errors these aren't picked up beforehand by the interpreter or compiler these errors are focused on how the program operates in terms of its results does it produce the expected output when given a specific input if you're adding up a column of numbers and you expect the answer to be 130 and it comes up with 260, then you know there's a bug. This raises another uh, uh, topic of uh, testing. Uh, there are different kinds of tests. There's unit tests, end-to-end -end tests, module tests. At every level, you want to think about testing. Because if something goes awry in the complex system, you're going to want to be able to identify the source as quickly as possible. And what that usually means with a well-written program is you run the tests and you look for the one that shows where the error is. There's a trap I often find junior programs run into. They like to use novel new methods and tricks they just learned. Often, if it's not the best solution to the problem, they do it just because it's novel 
And Python offers a rich environment of built-in methods and packages to feed that desire. Other programmers like to use built-ins in odd and obscure ways because they think the harder it is to comprehend, the smarter it makes them appear. This is highly dysfunctional behavior if carried out to an extreme, as it makes the code base practically unmanageable and makes life a living hell for the sustaining software engineers. Don't do that. Make your code clear, well commented, and as easy to understand as possible. Don't use a generator just because you think it's cool. Use it because you have a huge data set that can be generated via an algorithm than, rather than sucking up all your memory in a ginormous array. Use descriptive variable names. If you're writing a guessing game, call the user input something meaningful like guess, not something generic like input. That won't tell you what sort of input it is, or what it's for. Moreover, you'll redefine the built-in input method and really weird stuff will start happening. An exception to this rule is iterators and instances. Using i, j, k, etc. as integer iterators is a tradition inherited from Fortran. It goes back a long way. Fortran was a fast, well, is a fast, old number crunching language it was standard practice back then to call energies i through uh l i believe because that was the way the compiler defined integers class instances are another one you want to sort of bend that uh, descriptive variable name rule with because you use them so much, like numpy is uh, or numpy is traditionally abbreviated as NP. Uh, pandas is uh, abbreviated PD, and it's just to save you time typing because you're going to use them so much when referring to their methods. Repetition is something you always want to be on the lookout for. Eliminate it by developing an eye for it and learn how to reuse code. The concept of reuse is key to good programming as it eliminates redundancy. Why do we use variables? Because we intend to reuse that value in several places, such as a maximum. If the maximum value of our loop or data set is 42, we can save in it a variable called max and use it multiple times in different methods, functions, wherever, without having to remember what that actual number is or retype 42 over and over again and waste memory. When you write the Hello World program, you use a literal string rather than variables. Why? Because you only use it once makes no sense to save it in a variable, just a waste of time. Functions and methods are the same. You create a function because you intend to perform the action multiple times to reuse it. 
In a checkbook balancing script, for example, you might create a function called round two to round currency to two decimal places. And obviously you're going to use that a few times in a financial program like a checkbook balancer. You might create a Python generator to create a large data set at runtime to save memory, as we talked about before. That uh, is a real useful way to uh, avoid creating ginormous arrays. But don't use generators simply because you think they're cool or you're trying to impress people. That's just bad form. And modularize. Don't try to write the whole system at once. Break it down into manageable pieces. Identify repetitive calculations and tasks and turn them into loops, functions, and methods. Organize groups of functions, methods, and global and static variables into classes and shared library files. Then you can start combining these modules into a system, glued together with your custom code, and you can reuse them. Thus, you're building on your previous work. You don't cre keep reinventing the wheel over and over again. Let's talk about design considerations, since we're talking about the whole system. When designing a computer system, it's important to start with the desired output in mind first. What do you want out of this thing? I mean, it can be a report, a, a pulse to a servo motor, a blinking light, a, bell, an alarm, or any other type of output. The output will dictate what's necessary from the input data and how it needs to be processed in order to achieve that desired output. For example, if the desired output is a report, you will need to determine what data it needs and how should that data be organized into a report. What sort of calculations do you need to perform? But if the output is some series of servo pulses, you need to determine the characteristics of each pulse, such as its frequency and duration, and design the system to produce this pulse. You have electrical considerations, and voltages, and such. It's also important to consider the user of system and what they need from the output. For example, if it's a report, you may need to include certain formatting and visualization aids to make the report more easy to understand and useful to the user. So, you know, obviously the output is for your end user, so he's, he's really going to dictate how that output's going to look and what form it's going to take. Once you've determined the desired output of the computer system, the next step in the design process is to consider the processing requirements, what it needs to achieve to get that output. This involves determining what input data is required and how it needs to be used and manipulated to arrive at the desired output. The processing requirements can vary widely depending on the complexity and nature of the system. For example, the processing requirements for a simple calculator application may be as straightforward as two numbers and uh, just adding them together and displaying the result. 
in this case, the input data is trivial. It's just the two numbers. And all processing is is basic arithmetic function for addition. And the output display is just like the print statement usually, unless you're doing screen positioning and such, which is, uh, again, a whole other subject. On the other hand, the processing requirements for a machine learning system might be much more complex. In this case, the input data might consist of large matrices of data that need to be processed using hierarchical pattern matching algorithms and matrix multiplication as part of uh, some vast layered neural network. The processing might also involve training the neural network using various techniques such as gradient descent to optimize its performance. This, this is getting really deep. Overall, it's just important to carefully consider the processor requirements of a computer system in order to design a system that's efficient and effective and, of course, achieves the desired results. So many times with the power of modern computers, programmers get lazy and, uh, and, and don't think efficiency and, and just burn the CPU cycles and disk space like, uh, like there was no tomorrow. After defining the desired output of a computer system and the processing that will be needed to achieve it, the primary input requirements should become quite clear. These input requirements will typically be directly related to the data that is required for the processing tasks, such as the numbers to be added in the calculator application or the matrices of data to be processed in a machine learning system. However, there may also be secondary input requirements that are not directly related to the primary processing tasks, but are still necessary for the system to function properly. These might include input data that is used to support user experience, such as background images, font uh, libraries, and that kind of thing. For example, in a web application that displays information to the user, the primary input data might be the data that is displayed on the page, such as the text, numbers, charts. However, there may also be secondary input data that is used to support the aesthetics of the application, like I said, like the background image or, or the fonts. This input data might be stored in a separate configuration file or a database accessed by the application as needed to customize the appearance. Overall, it's important to consider both primary and secondary input requirements when designing a computer system. You, you need to look at the whole picture because you want to ensure your system functions properly and you know it provide, overall provides a good user experience. There's something known as design patterns. They're a modern software design concept that spawned from object-oriented programming. They are 
common patterns that repeatedly show up in all kinds of software development. One of them is uh, known as the publisher-subscriber relationship. These kind of problems have already been solved, and they're in a form of well-known published blocks of codes in almost any kind of uh, language you can think of. And there's a famous book written by a group called The Gang of Four on the subject, which I strongly recommend you read uh, to advance your coding skills. It'll save you a lot of time in not trying to reinvent the wheel or uh, reinvent things that have already been uh, invented. Anti-patterns are another type of recurring patterns in software. But contrary to design patterns, they are infamous for causing software problems. That's also uh, something you should check out, and there is a, a book on the subject as well. Technical forums are a great resource. Slashdot, everybody knows about Slashdots. Uh, uh, it's a great resource from uh, uh, for gaining experience uh, by watching other uh, people that probably run into the same kind of problems that you do. Uh, a new uh, development in in coding is uh, what I guess you could call AI assistants. These are natural language processors or NLPs. They're, they're AIs uh, based on neural networks, uh, and they have general knowledge. Uh, some of them, like uh, ChatGPT. And uh, some of them are specifically lined, uh, uh, designed to work with uh, programmers and help coding, like uh, Google's uh, Copilot. And they can really increase your productivity uh, because they understand your questions rather than simply matching a bunch of search terms like Google or DuckDuckGo or one of the search engines. They'll even write the code for you, believe it or not. But really, you need to be aware that they are sometimes spectacularly wrong. I don't know if you ever saw Watson and Jeopardy. He he kicked ass. He 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 beat everybody, including Ken Jennings. But when he was wrong, it was hysterical because I mean he, he wasn't even close to getting the right answer. But you know, more often than not, he got it right. So. You know, like I said, there's there's a couple of these AI assistants that can help you out. Uh, the Google Copilot and uh, ChatGPT for a more general uh, uh, AI. So in summary, don't be satisfied with a program that just works. Ask yourself, is it clearly written? Lots of air, good comments, good variable names. Do your peers compliment you on its clarity and uh, good use of uh, built-in methods? Does it look good? And finally, ask yourself, does it sing? The past is gone. The future hasn't arrived. Your hopes and fears are phantoms. There is no heaven above, no hell below, no supernatural realms. There is only this.